Welcome to Pantisocracy, and this is your host, Ms. Panty Bliss. <laughs> hi, hi. Oh, thank you. Thank you, and welcome to Pantisocracy, my parlor of Pantisocratic delights. Although, I suppose this time I should really be saying welcome back to Pantisocracy, because this is going to be the first episode of our fourth season here at Pantisocracy. And we are getting it off to a pretty great start, actually, because we have a stellar lineup of five interesting guests behind me. And so, in the parlor tonight, I have not one, but two extraordinary visual artists, Joe Castlet and Mazer, who both, in very different ways, use the street as their canvas and their art for social change. So please welcome Joe and Mazer. With them is filmmaker Aoife Kelleher, whose documentary One Million Dubliners changed public minds and hearts about Glass and Evan Cemetery, and whose recent work takes us inside the prison system. So thank you for joining us, and please welcome Aoife. <laughs> Then we have a Dubliner, a man of soul and music and compassion, Damien Dempsey, who uses his voice and songs for social impact. And Damo, in fact, worked with Mazer about 10 years ago on a project in Ballymun. So please welcome Damo Dempsey. Delighted to have you here, Damo. And finally, we have one of the hottest talents in town right now, and she's not even 20. It's the young spoken word artist, Natalia O'Flaherty. I'm delighted to have you here, Natalia. But before we get to a conversation with our lovely guests, first I want to tell you a story, because today's gathering of guests got me thinking about, well, how the streets and the towns and cities that we live in inspire us and or influence us and shape the stories that we tell, and how we, in the telling of those stories, shape the places we live in. And so it got me thinking about Dublin, and in particular, my Dublin. See, I was burgled once, years ago, when I lived in a crappy bedsit on Sing Street. I came home to find my place absolutely destroyed. It looked like there'd been an explosion at a Dolly Parton Christmas special. <laughs> there was wigs and sequins and fake breasts strewn all over the place. <laughs> I called the police, and a little later, when there were two big, burly, culty detectives standing somewhat uncomfortably in my flat, you know, surrounded by the debris of a dissolute transvestite, you know, I wasn't sure whether I should be trying to hide the gay pornography under my wigs or hide my wigs under the gay pornography. <laughs> In the mid-90s, Dublin was changing and the city had a vibrancy it hadn't had before. For the first time in generations, young people were not leaving in their droves, and homosexuality had only just been decriminalized, and a gay scene was slowly emerging from the shadows. The dance music explosion had hit Dublin, and straight kids started hanging out on dance floors with gay kids, and I don't know, suddenly Dublin had possibilities. It was changing, but not fast enough for me. Now, I'd already been running various nightclubs with my partner in crime, designer Niall Sweeney, and one night with our friend Claire, we decided to start a club night together. We weren't interested in money. We were interested in fun, in shaking things up, in shaking people up, and not be boring. We also decided, no doubt fueled by booze and one-upmanship, that it should be a fetish club. <laughs> Not that any of us had any particular interest in, or indeed any knowledge whatsoever, of the fetish scene, but that didn't stop us. In fact, in those pre-internet days, we weren't even bloody sure if there was a fetish scene in Dublin, but that was exactly why it seemed like a good idea. Because it wasn't boring. 
Now, the first job was to find a venue, which was relatively easy in those days when there were still plenty of dingy, half-empty venues around with owners willing to let anyone try anything to fill them. Our problem was keeping the venue after they saw what we were up to. <laughs> we went to three different venues before we found one that didn't throw us out after the first party. And it was in the Docklands, back when it was a dark and seedy part of the city full of warehouses and hookers. We called the club Gag, and for no other reason than it seemed like a good punchy name to us, and we put full stops after each of the letters, again, for no good reason except that we liked how it looked, and so it looked like it was an acronym for something. At one point, we tried to put an ad in the back of the Irish Times for the club, <laughs> figuring that that would be the paper of choice for the pervert set. <laughs> But Breda in the advertising department of the Irish Times said she couldn't take the ad without knowing what gag stood for. Now, I was taken by surprise, and thinking on my feet, I told her it stood for the very first thing that came into my head, which happened to be gaze against Germain Greer. <laughs> and Breda was happy with that. Now, we knew we wanted to do performances at this club, performances that would gently shock people, but at the same time make them laugh. Now, I do not remember now who first suggested that Niall should pull a string of pearls from my ass, but whoever it was, I, as usual, agreed to do it because... Well, it wasn't boring. And anyway, it wasn't really such a crazy idea as far as I was concerned. Once, during a student summer in London, I had seen legendary New York performer lactating Lady Hennessy Brown, <laughs> whose act involved... Well, she wasn't called lactating Lady Hennessy Brown for nothing. <laughs> and after she did exactly what it says on the tin, uh, she then did the crab and blew out flaming torches with a part of the body not usually known for blowing. <laughs> and so, shortly afterwards, I found myself perched on all fours on a stage in a club in the Docklands, while Niall pulled a six-foot-long string of pearlescent beads from my rouged posterior, <laughs> accompanied by the musical quaverings of France's national treasure, singing, Non, je ne regrette rien. <laughs> we called the performance Pearl Harbor, and <laughs> it was actually rather beautiful. Or at least it was when the beads were on their way out, but when they were on the way in, it was a different story. And I'm squatting in a cold, cramped backstage toilet with lubricant in one hand and a handful of cheap display beads in the other. But, you know, people really went for it. You see, I think if you go to a club and you see a performance like that, well, it really gives you permission to let your hair down. The club was a great success. And every month, more and more people would turn up. There were the curious clubbers in homemade outfits, nervous office workers in football gear, adventurous farmers up from the country, and excited, Dutch-couraged, regular straight guys who'd heard something wild was going on down the docks. And inside, you'd find an elderly transvestite would be chatting at the bar with a nonchalant straight woman with her husband on a nonchalant leash, while shaven-headed gay boys in rubber and tattoos made out on the dance floor and a straight businessman in a corset engaged in conversation with legendary Dublin DJ Tony Walt, who was holding forth while lying in a bath full of jelly. <laughs> Dublin 
had never seen anything like it, and we were the talk of the town. Now, half the stories weren't true, of course, but we weren't going to disabuse anybody of their fevered notions. Of course, all the fevered gossip was good for business, but eventually it also brought us unwanted attention. You know, the tabloids wrote salacious, faux-shocked stories, culminating with the British tabloid, The Sunday People, splashing on a breathless front-page story, Dublin, Sex Orgy Sensation, a headline which somewhat oversold the party, if I'm honest. <laughs> but the press attention also brought closer scrutiny from the Gardaí, who didn't really seem to know exactly what they should do about us, or indeed if they should do anything at all. But then, when the building itself was earmarked for sale to a developer as the Celtic Tiger started getting its teeth into the docklands, well, it did seem like the writing was finally on the wall. It was time to move on and do something new. But we didn't move on with any sadness, because in our own weird way, we had succeeded. Dublin was changing, and we had been part of that change. And we'd done it in the only way that we knew how, you know, by dressing up and having fun and giving two glittered fingers to the society we were rebelling against. Maze, let me start with you. Yeah. Give us the basics of your thing. Uh, I consider myself a post-graffiti artist now. And what that probably means is that I've transcended into galleries, uh, the gallery setting, museums, do fine art print work, stuff like that. But also still do a lot of contemporary murals. Yeah. And occasionally as a hobby, I do graffiti still. And where are you actually from? Harold's Cross, Harold's originally. Cross. Yeah. And it was all easy and nice, or yeah, how do you get from Harold's Cross to graffiti? Yeah, that's interesting. Still something I'm trying to figure out. I think it just ticked a lot of boxes at that age. I was probably 14. I obviously had an interest in art, so graffiti then lent to that and it allowed me to explore the city, found other like-minded yeah. kids and stuff like that, and it just sort of developed on. It was just a little hobby on the side on the weekends. I know that exactly, you know? your hobby so, ends up being your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And now, Joe, you, you, of course, there's a very obvious connection between you and Mazer because you're an artist and you also work on walls, And but you are from... Roscommon, which is, for people who don't know Roscommon, it's, like it's a large car park. <laughs> yeah, tell us a little bit about your background, Joe. Yeah, born in Roscommon, was the first in my school to go to NCAD, so it was kind of like... So you took the traditional route to art? Yeah, I kind of went at it in a different way. So I went, to, I went to college and was in college for six years, and then came to street art more so through trauma. I trained as a teacher and was working mm -hmm. as a teacher for a number of years. And then within the first five years of, of teaching, I lost five kids to suicide. And that put me in a place Teenagers of, or... Yeah. So I, I went back and I'm quite lucky that I use my art as a therapeutic to solve things that are in my head. And then I wanted to talk specifically to young men and found that street art at that time was an urban setting. So I came at it a much different way to Mazer and... Yeah. And, uh, now, Natalia, first of all, let me just say that I think I might actually worship you. Um, I, like a lot of people, dis you know, discovered you on The Late Late Show. But my God, the first time you were on The Late Late Show, I was like, who the hell is that? At your age, to be so confident and the piece you did was so mature. And, but in a way, your work has connections with Joe's yeah. because it's often to do with tough times and hard times and mental health. And, but from a female perspective, more. Yeah, definitely. Like... 
You said there, I'm confident, I'm just going to tell you a secret now. My boyfriend had to drag me in to the front door because I was absolutely geeking it to come in because I just can't deal with little interactions like that. But then I get on stage and I just melt away and I'm a different person. Yeah. So confident, no. <laughs> Happy on stage, probably well, better. Well, I, I think the rest of the world reads you as confident. Yeah, so, so I'll take so that. So that take is that. confidence. <laughs> <laughs> and you're from Neilstown, Neilstown which isn't yeah. exactly known for, you know, the salubrious... You oh, know, God, no. It High has arts, no, not issues, at all. Yeah. Graffiti, yeah, loads of it, <laughs> lots of it. But it's mostly just like Bosco on the wall or something it's not mad like and were you the weird kid or you were the popular kid who had a weird thing on the side I mean <laughs> neither really I was just quiet like my nickname was Mouse for a long time because I literally just didn't speak which is funny enough now because that's what I do like yeah yeah, no, I was the little quiet kid. I was mad into my books. I was very studious and stuff. Kind of fell off that when I got to leave in certain time. But yeah. yeah, I was definitely, I was in writing groups and stuff when I was in yes. school. So that kind of jazz. And Damo, yeah. see, I have a couple of weird connections with you, Damo. <laughs> the first one is that you were kind enough to do the guest artist spot on our show, Riot. Uh, what a show, what a show. The second I used to lip sync to one of his songs, just very occasionally. And the song is a very serious song, serious, yeah. about drug addiction and so on. And when I heard that you had heard that I was doing it, see, most people think of drag and they think it's all just silliness and stupidness. And so I thought, oh, God, he probably thinks I'm taking it, you know, taking the piss or something. And I totally do it deathly seriously. I was blown away by it when I saw you, but it's been taken down. You saw down. me do it. Yeah, it was, up on, it was up on YouTube, but it got taken down. It was brilliant. <sighs> taken down because your record company probably complained. <laughs> but also, our third funny little connection is Steel Wall. I think he would agree. You've been a mentor to him. And uh, his first album is out. And I think in many ways, that's thanks to you and letting him support you. And, I was mentored yeah. as well by fellas like Christy Moore and that, you know, so mm. you have to kind of pass it on, you know. And Sinead O'Connor, my well, yeah, yeah, heart. She was was also good to you, right? Yeah, amazing. She was great. She brought me around the world on tour. Yeah. When she asked me to come on tour, I thought she wanted me to do security, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and you would have been good at it. You were a boxer and everything, right? Ah, <laughs> I don't a bit, don't a bit. And then finally, Aoife, for the listeners, Aoife Keller, the documentary maker sitting here uh, amongst us. I mean, that's how I know of you. How did you get into that? Because your work is touching also on these themes of disadvantage and prisons and so on? Like quite straightforwardly in that I studied film and broadcasting, but um, I guess had a, an interest in the transgressive and gender and sexuality. And I studied women's studies in Oxford and came home and worked on my first documentary series, which was Growing Up Gay, which I started yes, working on. Yes, I know of you, you first. I, I always assumed you were a lesbian. <laughs> Well, um, <laughs> my husband's in the audience. <laughs> oh, I just assumed, you know, I assume, I assume everybody's lesbian unless they tell me differently. Well, I did. I, Demo I, still hasn't told me. <laughs> I actually came out in my all-girls convent school when I was in transition year and there was this big wave of kind of comings out during the all-female performance of Oliver Twist that we were doing. <laughs> I don't know what it was that came over all of us, but it was quite an intense time. But um, <laughs> And literally three weeks after that, I started going going out with, with the man I later married. So it was a very short burst of, of the transgressive <laughs> for me. Which he must be a really good lover. <laughs> <laughs> now, the first thing I do want to talk about is actually go back to something I mentioned earlier, is that Amazer and Damo, you were 
worked together 10 years ago. Yeah, nearly 10 years ago now. Yeah. On a, well, tell us about what that project was. It probably, like, like most of our projects, I just have a notion. And it's not, there's no real plan or anything like that. I was listening to Damien's music as a big fan, as a teenager. I think I can speak for a lot of young Dublin men that mm-hmm. he's a saviour in a way. Mm-hmm. And um, there's definitely times that I needed him and he's a voice there. And so it just, there was a real connection, even though I'd never met him. And developed on, I was just in the studio, I was just like, I'd love to be able to try and communicate that, what I got, and what I do is visual. So yeah. literally we met in Grogan's, and it was one of the most nervous times of my life. But had you an idea in your head what this project was going to be, or you just said, I want to meet Damo and... There was definitely a fanboying part to that, yeah, for yeah. sure. But no, when I first out, I was like, I want to take these words and transcribe them on the wall, I have the ability to do that. So Damo's words... On the walls of Dublin. And like, the project was called... Dare us. That came after. Like, we were just doing it and just winging it. We met, we chatted. He ends the conversation like, so you just want me to give you awards and you're going to write them on the wall? Something like that. And But that was as far as the thought went. But at that time, that's all it was. And then when when I got the green light, I started looking into it. I was like, then we just started getting locations around Dublin and it blew up to like, I was out in Ballymun doing a workshop with uh, one of Damo's mates actually. And we walked by one of the blocks of flats. I was like, be mad to do that. And then that was it, just a word spread. And that's literally how it went. And we needed money for that. And a local businessman gave us some money for the lift. Damo did a gig to raise some money for the spray paint. I think I painted about 20 murals around Dublin. And then during that whole thing, actually, mm-hmm. when I was painting, I was getting to meet a lot of people and it was a lot of homeless people and got to know them on the journey. And it brought me on to going into prison for a while to look at that and work with the inmates. And then the words just came, they are us. Like, that, that, we'll call it they are us. Like, I mean, for anyone saw, saw it, and I remember seeing it, like, it was so impressive. Yeah, there was no marketing or anything like that. We were just doing it. And then I think people, when, we, when I painted Greed as a Knife and the Scars on Deep, on that road that brings you out to the Port Tunnel, yeah. then I started to get a lot of attention. I think Dame had to go on the radio and sort of explain what it was. Even though we didn't really know what, it, what, what we <laughs> were doing. Like. So, so Damo, you met him in the pub, and he explained... I want to just use your words, and you're like, grand, have them. Or at that stage, were you discussing that it was going to be about homelessness and, you know, mental health and all, you know, all the things that it grew to be? It was sort of just to uh, maybe lift people as they were walking around the city. Everyone was sort of down. It was the recession, and there was mm. a lot of just uh, negative vibes going around. Just to lift people and make them think and stuff like that, you know, and open their mind. And just going into the prison, and uh, we were doing uh, kind of songwriting workshops, and... Mesa was showing the heads how to uh, do graffiti and, you know, yep. trying to get them to start doing poetry and stuff like that, you know. Mm. Like, when I was a kid, people thought poetry was just for, the, you know, the intelligentsia, you know. Yeah. So, just to tell them, it doesn't have to be mad complicated, it can be just simple, you know. Yeah. Just once it's from the heart and it means something to you. And so, the reason I'm bringing this up really so much is because you guys are definitely revisiting this or you're talking about it or... Yeah, that was just like, we were just texting last week, I think, and we're like, what about revisiting there us? Because it's 10 years later. Like, that's as far as the conversations went, but uh, I think we're about excited. We're like, yeah, maybe... Absolutely, it'd be great to do it again. And I don't know what that will look like. Do we revisit what we did before? Or do we develop it on to bringing in other artists? or Christy or we're just at the start but like it's definitely it's different than 10 years ago and I think there's a lot of scope for it and I think back then we we were doing it very modestly but I think there's more of awareness and appreciation for public art now so. and the two of you are even bigger now so you'd have no trouble rustling up some local <laughs> businessman to give it the guy <laughs> it, well listen this seems like a good time to have a song because we're going to be having a couple of songs from you Damo um, sure. so uh, tell us what you're going to do for us first it's about uh, two friends of mine who uh, 
are no longer with us. They took their own lives, and um, that's kind of depression has gone through the roof in the in the last mm. decade. You know, and depression like it kind of tells you lies. It tells you that you're no use, and everybody around you will be better if you were gone. And, mm. But the song is just uh, encouraging people to tell you know someone they trust if they're feeling really low. You know. Because uh, as soon as you say it, you, you don't feel so alone anymore. You know? In a way, it's a sort of an anthem to male friendship. Yeah, I suppose it would be, yeah, yeah. My, my two friends never told anybody. Yeah. Before they went and done it, you know. Mm. Well, anyway, let's, uh, rather than uh, us talk about sure. it, let's you sing about it. The name of the song, Chris and Stevie. <laughs> Buddy Stevie, I loved him well. We had some laugh, he was sound as a bell. Our little lives, they ran parallel. He played with fire and got burnt. As hell And I'm remembering Little things we done We'd bunk the train Out to the beach In the sun We'd steal some ice pops And laughing run in through the sand dunes with finger guns. But one day, Stevie, he got the bitten by a bug. He was fascinated by the life of the thug. He felt a weakling and he craved some power. But the thug's existence can soon turn sour. I'm missing you today. I'm missing you at me what I wouldn't do for one last laugh with you my buddy Chris he was quiet but tough and to his face you wouldn't call him a puff we done the boxing and that many's the scrap To this young warrior I'll tip my cap In Celtic times it Wasn't seen as wrong Till the Roman Empire With the shame came along They called this love evil and they done much harm But if you're hurting no one Sure you'll be in God's arms Well, Chris and Stevie 
I miss you both. To my young people cut down from a rope and it breaks my heart that you went so far. To all you people, be proud of who you are. I'm missing you today. I'm missing you Thanks, Damo. Really beautiful. Joe, now, of course, a lot of people might know you most from the two big murals you did during the marriage equality referendum campaign, the one on George's Street of the two guys embracing, and then the one on the side of the castle of the two, two, two girls embracing. But they're not actually the projects I want to talk to you, uh, even though I love those, and I have one of them on my wall that you so kindly sent to me at one time. I want to talk about your other projects, Our Nation's Sons and the Volunteers. Let's talk about first about Our Nation's Sons. Tell us about that. Uh, we had just hit the recession, and there was a lot of trauma. It's hard to talk about that after listening to know, that man yeah. sing. Yeah, so I had started a project called Our Nation Sons, and it was about, you know, my day in, day out life was dealing with uh, young people in the classroom. And I can sense an emotion, even like two steps in the door. You can tell how a kid is, yeah. whether they need you or not as, you know, kind of as some form of support. The, your students were boys and girls? Boys and girls. Uh, I'd kind of moved around from boys' school to a girls' school and mixed school. So I had felt that there was young men in particular, they weren't seen as a, a legitimate players within society. So I travelled the country uh, with a project called Our Nation Sons and, and put up huge, big drawings of young men on you know, kind of lots of different spaces. And it wasn't just, you know, kind of sticking up pictures of young men. It was going into communities, finding young men, working with them over a period of kind of weeks and months. And like there was some amazing crack, you know, when you're with, with the lads. And giving them a sense of positivity when you leave, that they have added or contributed to their community in a way. They've opened a dialogue and that they're able and prepared to continue that dialogue. 
And, you know, Alad talked earlier about his appreciation to music, and music is a doorway into emotion, and, yeah. and so is, you know, kind of the visual world. It's, it's, a, it's opening a different door. And so you're trying yeah. to open as many doorways into those conversations that they take place. Yeah. And I was quite ridiculous when I first went back to college. I thought that I was able to solve the problem of kind of suicide or suicide ideation by drawing. But my greatest power, in a sense, is, you know, is creating spaces for those mm. conversations. And you spend so much time in, you know, the piece that was on, generally when it goes on the wall, you stand around for an hour and then you leave. And if you don't see it again, it doesn't really matter because you, you've given it to the people that deserve it and you've mm. given it out to your audience. And even the, you know, the piece that was on, on Georgia Street, it lasted 17 days. And it's, yeah, it's very short. It's that very one, short, yeah. yeah. And then when the rain took it down, I was told that that was, you know, kind of God's way of telling the gays. That, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> and the other thing, though, about you, and, and funny, we've had a number of guests on here who are teachers doing other things. Mm -hmm. and, and you continue because that is part of the work or it's... Yeah, I've tried to kind of create this beautiful space of where the two can exist. Now, in the ideal, that's how it would work, but then it doesn't, like, kind of, there's not enough days or hours in the day for and, it to and happen. And you're self-funding most of the work. Yeah, about maybe 85 or 90% is self-funded. So when you go to the, you know, kind of try a conversation with the bank manager and you go into him and you go, I'm thinking about a mortgage, and he's going, well, that's an expensive hobby. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's kind of a difficult conversation to have. But it will, you know, but on the other hand, that's, it clearly doesn't interest you that much. I mean, you could go along to bloody Tesco and say, I'll do one for you on the side of yeah, one of your no, superstars. I, I'm greatly influenced by what happens in the classroom. Like, the marriage equality was already passed in our corridors five years beforehand, you know what I mean? It was, the kids felt it was ridiculous that, you know, kind of we had to decide on that. I've known a, a family in Tullamore for the last seven years and we concluded at, at the start of the year a, a campaign called Save Nonso. It was a, a young lad that yes, was... Yes, 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 just to, to remind listeners, because yeah. it, it was a, for a day or two, it was a big news story. I'm not going to even take a stab at his surname. Yeah. You tell me what his surname Nansel is. Nansel Mujeke. Uh, this was a family that, that came to Ireland 11 years ago. One of the boys mm. came when he was two and a half. The other boy came when he was seven. And the, there was a deportation order against them. And we just saw as a community and as a school that we needed to keep this family here. And they have offered and made me a better person and made the kids in school better people. Yep. And there was, you know, 22,000 people signed a, a petition in the local area. And then eventually the, the minister uh, granted them leave to remain, uh, which was great. And it was funny because afterwards, whenever I get into a project, I always, you know, imagine that the final piece is going to be a drawing. But we didn't need to put it up. And I was sitting at home, I remember going, Jesus, this is, you know, kind of the, the vanity in, you yeah. know, of yourself. Uh, and you're going, oh, I didn't get to put up that drawing. But a mate just said, well, reframe it. Your success is, you know, you're now an advocate as well. Or, yeah. you know, your art doesn't always have to be the end of the conversation. Yeah. In all the conversations I ever have with artists and so on, especially ones who have come from backgrounds that wouldn't necessarily push them in that direction, there's always one teacher. Mm. And you must be that person for so many. The kids would go, no way. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what kids do. But you know, yeah, let's yeah, ask them yeah, in 20 yeah, yeah. years. There was uh, a piece of mine ended up on the Leaving Cert and I was teaching the Leaving Cert that year. Uh, and I had 22 kids in the class and eight of them did it. It was like, Jesus, <laughs> you couldn't get on it. You know, you know that saying, you can lead a horse to water, but it's... Uh, yeah. Well, outside of Roscommon, it's lead a horse. And <laughs> um, I, Eve, I want to come to you because the documentary um, that everyone has seen and loves, you know, A Million Dubliners, about Glasnevin uh, Cemetery, kind of in a way, the main guy, in a way, 
in the middle of filming, he you know, takes his own life in the cemetery. And, and right up to that moment, he had seemed so full of life and love about the cemetery, and he had all the stories, and, and then this thing happens. And it's a stunning moment. And for you, what do you do then? Like, who do you have the conversation with about how you continue it, or whether you put it in the film or not put it in the film? Or do you, do you talk to his family, his friends? Well, I mean, what happens? Actually, a recurrent theme throughout the documentaries that I've made is around kind of, you know, masculinity in kind of forms of crisis. And I suppose that was a case where no one would ever known that that was a man in crisis. You know, mm. it's, it's, you know, this idea that a person can be so, so gregarious, so sociable, so, so actually beloved. And yet, you know, there's this entirely different life going on under the surface. So, you know, right up until the day, I remember I, I kept buying Shane McAmosh's book about Glass Nevin and, and losing it. And I remember texting him to say, I've just bought like the 10th copy of your book. You're going to bankrupt me. And, it, you know, that the little tick comes up that it's seen and he never responded. And he was all like, you know, that, that almost never happened. Like he was gas, you know, there was, there was, he always had the final word in every conversation, you know. And then the next day I got a text from, from a friend saying, is, is Shane McAmosh dead? And don't be crazy like you know what are we you know what are you talking about and then it was on the news and we were in the edit of the documentary at that point you know and we we had one more day left to film and the plan was that it was going to be around Easter and that he was going to kind of introduce us to all the various factions that kind of laid claim to Glastevin around that time but instead our, our final day of filming was filming Shane's funeral and, and that came about through conversations that, that happened then at that time with, with Glasnevin, with Shane's family, with, and it, you know, initially when we heard the news, it was not clear that we'd continue with the film at all. And it was only through conversations that we decided that, that it would be okay to do that. But, um, I mean, he, you know, Shane had, you know, some health difficulties and, you know, and, and he had, uh, his, his own father had died. And I think that that had been a huge blow, but everyone loved him. And in particular, actually, I remember how much it affected men and how uh, watching in screenings, men crying and men, you know, coming up after and talking about how, how much they were affected by it all. And it was great to see, I suppose, that release of emotion, you know. Mm. Well, your current work then is also almost inevitably centred around mostly men because it's in prisons. Tell us about that. So um, I've been working for the last 14 months in the Midlands prison in Port Leash, which is all male. It's a capacity of kind of 870 and it's it's the largest prison in Ireland. And it's been really, really fascinating. I suppose it's it's an interesting prison in loads of ways. It's it's the only committal prison in Ireland for sex offenders. So there's And actually, I read just something interesting you said in passing that you know, the vast majority of the prisoners are from disadvantaged socioeconomic backgrounds, except for the sex offenders who come from all strata. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when it comes to ordinary prisoners, the vast majority have never sat a state exam. Half of them left school before they were 15. But it's very different in the sex offender wings, you know, because in Ireland, we're still dealing with, you know, historic crimes in that area you'll see very, very old men, which you tend not to see elsewhere in the prison, you know, yeah. and men in wheelchairs. It's, it's an interesting contrast. And of course, drugs are a big part of that 
project too. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. The sort of issues that you come uh, across there are is yeah. a microcosm of, of the big issues that you read about around masculinity and everything from more men being in prison for starters, but then also men struggling with learning difficulties, men dropping out of school, men having problematic relationships at home. And, you know, addiction is huge. And, and there has been a death over the course of filming that series as well. And for the most part, it's a female crew. It, well, it's, it's basically just been two of us, actually, so in there. And it's, so it's myself and, and the cinematographer is Eleanor Bowman, who is, she's five foot, and I don't know that she'd necessarily be particularly useful in any kind of brawl situation. <laughs> there have been times where we got locked into landings when there were no guards there. And it was, you know, I remember just the two of us looking at each other going, is this how it all ends, do you think? <laughs> but actually, it, you know, it's interesting about... Norms and conventions. Yes. First of all, I suppose there are women in prisons, you know, even in all male prisons, like, you know, you've got psychologists, you've got prison officers, you know. But then also, you know, the the conventions that we found in in the Midlands were, you know, that there was an extraordinary level of respect and politeness and that it would not be the done thing to kind of physically infringe on on either of us in any way. You know, it was was for the most part an atmosphere of, you know, respect. Now, Natalia, like, I don't want to keep banging on about it by saying you're 18 years old but it actually you started when you were 14 or something is, is about right? 12 actually 12. yeah I went into a writing group in Collinstown and Nailstown where I went to school Colm Keegan's Colm Keegan yes. yeah and see, another, the mentorship is so exactly, important exactly yeah yeah. Yes. yeah he was from where I was from and he talked the way I talked and it was the first like demo was saying poetry's not for the intelligentsia anymore it never was but it was you thought that it was and he was the first person I ever heard that sounded like me and done what I was interested in, which was poetry. And I heard his poem crackle and I, about Dublin City and I was, I was like, you can do that, you can do that, you can sound like that and talk about things like that and people will listen to you. And it, was, it blew my mind. And um, a lot of my peers and mentors would be men mm-hmm. in a way. My friends are mostly males just because of who I was when I was growing up. I was a tomboy. I'd scale back walls and be pumps and be getting firewood and all mad stuff and whatever, like just doing what the lads were doing. Mm-hmm. And all the poets that would be pushing the way for Irish poetry going international, Stephen James Smith, Emmett Gerwin, Colin, Colin himself. It's just... And it's kind of strange that that's where I'm getting my influence from. People are like... And there's absolutely tons of amazing female poets everywhere. They're absolutely boring, not the same as we've, we've had some of them on here exactly. and you're right, yes. Jessica Trainer. Yeah, and gorgeous. Yeah. Sasha Tifus and Feli Speaks, gorgeous girls. Oh, Feli Speaks, we've had her on Brilliant. here Brilliant. Like, absolutely just great minds. But it's strange for me that my mentorship did come from older men in that way who we couldn't relate necessarily on a very literal way but it was the same kind of struggles people who came from where I was from and sound like what I sound like you're going to do a piece for us now um, so tell us about it yeah so it's harking back to drug abuse and men and the perception of people that do abuse drugs in that mm-hmm. way I hate the term junkie and I use it casually without thinking about yeah. it but it's it's derogatory it's a slur and I don't like using it and it will slip into conversation and I'll be you, you catch mm. yourself on it but it's about a drug user and Lewis and he has this experience with a child and Lewis. And, um, it and, and is it something you, 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 from life? Yeah, God, yeah. I, anywhere you'd be going, I come in from Neilstown and the bus that goes from like Neilstown to Finglas, like mm. you're going to get drug users on the bus. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time they'll be out in the open book because people are addicted to drugs and there should be centres and stuff like that. And that's something I'm very passionate about is 
providing the space, you know what I mean? Yeah. My own cousin died of an accidental overdose on party drugs. So addiction and men and addiction in particular, it's very easy to skim over and say, ah, sure, they're just having fun, or ah, sure, they're just junkies, or ah, sure, they're just, you know what I mean? Write them off. And it is called the, the irony, irony of, of entitlement. entitlement. Yeah. Let's hear it. He shouts pigs when the guards pass. He calls his rolling skills art, even when rolled in public parks. He lost his father, lies to his mother. Dead to his sister, steals from his brothers. Silly holds his abuse of Robin Scorm at the nearest TD. Or some other poor, politically pertained prick. He's not like you and me, no, he's the epitome of all things wrong with this system. And by God is he brazen, unlike any youth I've ever met. Silly claims his disrespect when he's thrown off the Lewis for public indecency. But I'm not talking about his dick, I'm talking about his feet. I'm talking about his toe, the high, the heroin. Looking for somewhere to go, looking for somewhere to flow, looking for somewhere to... Oh. He finds a vein, the substance, the saviour, direct to his brain. Numbs the hurt and the pain, if only for a little while. It's just about now that he's noticed by a child who under the lem was full of smiles, pure dreams. Now he's screaming, Mammy, that man's dead. No, son, he's just off his head. So we have to ask it to live. Mammy, help him, he can't breathe. So we have to ask it to live. Why are they doing that? What did he do? Sit your ass down, that's enough out of you. A quick heave and a hasty lob. It's all part of the job. It's four or five times a monthly. It's a free country. Comes a hay shout from the Lewis stop. An angry look from one of the state's goons and a sad laugh from the other. The boy gets dragged back to his seat by his mother, away from the crumpled stranger. And as that carriage moves a long distance in them from their perceived danger, that little boy prays for that monster of a man. Thank you. Joe, I want to come back to you here about your other project, Volunteers. Tell us about that one. The Volunteers was a, a project that came about in about 2015. So we were about to embark on the centenary celebrations of 1916. And I looked at, OK, well, who are the people of the 1916 rebellion? What were they trying to do? And who would they be now in Ireland? And the idea of mentorship and, and being a volunteer and giving back was incredibly important. And I am lucky that nearly all of my family have... Uh, worked in the local hospital mm. and I've seen them do their job but I've always always seen them give far more than that so it was incredibly important that I showcased what it, uh, a volunteer was in in the Ireland of now and I, I wanted to look at volunteerism around mental health and specifically around the area of stigma the second piece then was about around drug addiction and to move addiction from the courts or the criminal justice space and into the healthcare space yes. and then the last piece mentioned briefly earlier was around uh, direct provision and how disgraceful that process is. Now, now, Damien, you, who have in a sense given a voice to people from your community, whether it's by embodying a character or just saying the stuff that your community needs said or whatever, is that a conscious thing or you're just writing songs and then other people are projecting that onto you? I suppose there's a lot of uh, healing going on, I suppose, you know. Mm. kind of trauma in my early life, you know, in the family life at home and all, you know. But uh, there was a lot of trauma in Ireland then as well, I think, you know. Um, it was like the dark edges, you know. Mm. I think, I don't know, divorce was illegal. Homosexuality yeah. was illegal. Abortion was illegal. And there was a war raging in the north. People were just leaving all the time. I saw pretty bad poverty in the 80s, you know. Yeah. I remember they opened um, a swimming pool in Donamid. Like all my road, all my, all my mates, we are skinny now, but some of the lads who, the fathers were on the labour. They were like, I'm going to say, like, they all their ribs and all. Mm. Their dads were going to the pub and just drinking their labour on the Tuesday, you know. 
So you'd see kids who are hungry, like, you know. But um, Ireland has changed a lot, you know, and I, I was very proud of in 2015, I think, was a great year for rebellion in Ireland, you know. It gave me great hope that uh, we stood up to the church and the state, you know, yeah. with the same-sex uh, referendum and um, the water charges as well, you know, yeah. when the people wouldn't pay their, their water bills, you know. That terrified. <laughs> yeah. to be terrified them. Mazer said at the beginning something that you, uh, I'm sure embarrassed you and you and skipped over, where he said that you were important to him and saved him in some ways because you were a voice that he needed to hear at a particular time in his life. And he's not the first person who said that to me about you. That's a responsibility. But, but is it one that you feel and that you, you set out to be a voice of your community? Or are you just writing your songs and all that happened to you? I suppose at the start it was just, uh, I was trying to heal myself and then when I realised I was able to heal other people, then I started writing for them, you know. Mm. So uh, I couldn't believe it, you know, it was, it was meaning so much to people. On the outside me, you're a boxer, as nah, indeed nah. you were, but on the inside you're a hippie. Um, <laughs> because, well, first of all, a lot of guys, Irish guys, guys everywhere really, don't have the courage to say the stuff that you say out in public. You know, sure. they think of it as weak or feminine or whatever to, yeah. to talk to express these kinds of emotions, and then they all go weak at the knees for you because you've journeyed for them. Well, I think as an artist, the, the, the creativity is the feminine, isn't it? So you have to be in touch mm. with the feminine side to be an artist, yes. And, and also, apparently, to be an artist, you need to do nude yoga in your back garden, <laughs> <laughs> which is a sight I know oh many God. of us would agree we would like to see. Demo, how long have you been into the nude yoga? <laughs> No, we, no, we, we do, do if, 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 if it's a warm day and just have a bit of, <laughs> have a bit of, <laughs> on the grass, you should get on the grass every day, if you have some grass and get your, your bare feet on the grass, you know, or your body on the grass is great, grounding it's called, the yes, Native and, Americans and, have done it for eons. Now, now Al, yep. you're not a, a nude yoga guy, but you're a bit of a hippie too, despite the graphic, non-hippie looking nature of your work. Because you're interested in, in reaching men, you're interested in allyship with women. Of course, many people will know of the mural you painted yeah. during the Repeal the Eighth campaign on the side of the Project Arts Theatre, and then it was taken down, which of course beautifully ties in with Joe there, because you, both of you had a piece of work that gained much more traction exactly. because somebody tried to take it down. Mm. So, I mean, these are not your typical blokey concerns. And is that your artistic nature, or is it from somewhere else. I don't really know. It's hard, it's hard to explain because I'm so I'm so in it. But the Mesa persona has definitely taught Al and guided Al over the years, and yeah. Damien has been a big part of that too. And so when you talk about your feminine side or whatnot, I think like I dealt with a lot of inner anger, and um, and I think that was true. I'm 37 years of age. It took me a long time to realize that that was the only emotion that that was my response to everything was anger and yeah. upset and whatnot. It's one of the only. Uh, Emotion that men are allowed to have in public. Yeah, and so luckily then, doing graffiti, Macer brought out this Macer loves you, this other persona. Yeah. And did this like being this coalition between the two now, they're both guiding each other, Al and Macer and whatnot, and it became that vehicle for my feminine side yeah. or whatnot, you know, and artistic side, and it became very relatable then for other men, young artists, even that, a, a mentor in the studio. and. Yes, I want to bring that up there now because... You didn't take the traditional route to being an artist. Well, you started art college, I but started then you art dropped college out. And, and I didn't like it, yeah, dropped out. But and, I went and, back and studied But that was design. because that you felt that the art world wasn't your 
world as the art world was built. Yeah, yeah. It didn't. It, I, I wasn't formally trained or anything like that. I was doing graffiti and street art, and just the teachers at the time. I just thought it was just absolute bullshit. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't believe in what they were saying. And you didn't feel and, like gallery spaces were for you and and, and your work or um, at the time. Yeah, at the time. Yeah, I think so. And so I just I just scrapped it. And then you know, my master in my ear going, "You need a job and whatnot." And because I was sort of messing about, and I went back being a comedy chef. And then uh, I studied, friends of mine were doing graphic design. So that was like a career. You could yeah. do graphic design. And, and you went into topography. And yeah, yeah. I had so a you're, great and mentor. you're 38, you said. So 37. The yeah. computers, computers had arrived. <laughs> and, you know, I went to our college back in the day when we were, had to cut out later. Yeah, first year was everything cut out. Yeah. And yeah. then uh, second year we had Max. Um, but where I'm going with this then, of course, as you, I mean, you might be gathering, is you've then set up your own kind of gallery studio space. In, yeah. It's mentorship, it's uh, giving space to other young artists. Yeah. You're creating your own structure. Yeah, that was it. Like, I was living away, I was living in the States for two years, and then I was living in London for nearly two years. And I just really wanted to move home. I sort of, I think I was running away from myself a little bit. And so I just came to accept that. Okay, and, what, and what is the aim of, of the gallery? It just, again, it was just, I was like, because, you know, New York's meant to the next thing and LA and all that, but I just mm. really wanted to come home. I was traveling loads of my work and I was living in London and I was back here and so I just cut London out came back and I said what does that look like I need a big space I was going to get a warehouse out in an industrial estate and then I came across this property and I did a proposal so yeah I got this great space and I said okay well since it's in town I should maybe do something more with it and I've always wanted I had these notions about being owning a school or being a teacher for some reason and so this is a stepping stone to that so my studio space I built out like a gallery and so three months of the year it's my studio but then every three months I'll host an exhibition for artists who've come from the same sort of background as me graffiti artists graffiti street artists right now it's just Irish artists that want to sort of have that step into the gallery world and it was also like a bit of act of rebellion Going galleries don't accept us, so we'll build our own. And so, so where, where is it? It's on Charlemont Street, just near the canal there. My impression of the graffiti scene is that it's quite blokey, not not yeah. in a bad way, just yeah. you know, uh, guys. And is, is that the case? And yeah, are, are really the is. artists mostly? There's some amazing artists there, female artists, but they're coming from different sort of disciplines. Maybe not from like it's all become a big art mosh now you know mm. where like Joe's coming from a different background we've got Vanessa coming from a different background different illustrators and then they're using the public realm uh, to showcase their work and that's perfect so but I genuinely don't know many female artists even internationally when we go paint and I don't know if that's just a lad thing the way we're, we're territorial or I don't know where but it's it's how it is. Um, Natalia, what what are you up to at the moment? What's going on with you? Because you are still doing your studies in. Of course, in I DCU, am. I'm in DCU yes. doing media in English. I'm in my first year, just done my exams. Well, I like, assume all the other students hate you. Oh God, they they don't know who I am. To be honest, I have two mates in college, and they're deadly. I have Sophie and Luke, and that's grand. Like everyone else, just. Doesn't really, but my, they don't watch Late Late They show. don't watch Late Late. Yeah. There you go. I told Sophie and Luke to watch it so they know. But the rest <laughs> of them, not an ocean, which is nice. It's nice to have like a Kim Possible double life kind of thing going on. So Eva, your, your prison series has, <laughs> has come out. Uh, so what are you up to next? Um, I'm I'm writing a script for uh, for my first drama, my feature drama. So it's which is very exciting. That's a big change. Yeah, it's great. I, well, I've been so I've been working in documentary for ten years, so it just kind of the time felt right to do okay. to do something a little bit different. So I'm I'm working on that at the moment, and it's it's yeah, it's really enjoyable. I've been you know writing a script with for with another company for the last. 18 months and I want to murder everybody involved. There's too many people in something, a project like that. 
And Damo, you are going to finish up for us um, with another song. Sure. This song is about that you have to love yourself, not in an arrogant way. You have to love your eyesight, your hearing, your speech, your heart, your lungs, your chi, energy, and uh, give thanks for it. That's what I think. But uh, and give their mirror a kiss every morning, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and what's it called? It's called. It's all, it's it's all, all good. All good. <laughs> When I can, yeah, on the bag, not the sky. The negativity, yeah, pushed on the young party, yeah, is a shame. Who's the When the baby cries, yeah, she has been criticized, yeah, been put down. It's passed down. They try to keep us down, yeah. They hide the high queen's crown, yeah, from the gate. Kathleen Wills And to survive this thing, yeah I have to be the king, yeah Grasp the wealth Of yourself But it's all gone It's all
Anyway, that is it from Pantasocracy for this episode and um, our first episode back after the break. And it's been wonderful to have you all. So thank you all, Mazer, uh, Joe Caslin, Damo Dempsey, Eva Keller, and Natalia O'Flaherty. And to everybody uh, in our studio audience and everybody at home listening, you can catch up on all the podcasts on all of the usual platforms and you can catch up on everything Pantasocracy, including videos of tonight's performances on pantasocracy.ie. Thank you and good night. Thank you. Thank you.